I think this is so much less true now than it was when I started. But coaches, you know, teaching history had kind of a unfairly bad reputation, I think, for not trying very hard or not, you know, they had their feet up on their desk reading their paper. The guys that I had didn't do that. I mean, the, some of my favorite teachers were coaches because they were passionate about what they did. But if you're that kind of teacher, you're probably not a very good coach either. I would say the willingness to prepare, how relational you are with your kids, and the essence of teaching, being able to take an abstract concept and make it concrete for somebody so they say, oh, okay, I understand the words you're saying. Now I have the mental picture and I can do that. And as you said, adapt it. Okay, I understand the concept, not just this thing for this particular day. I mean, I can use it tomorrow. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Quorum, and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Mark Malcolm is a 42-year coaching veteran that has positively impacted the lives of thousands of young men, including me. He's a tactical innovator, a master coach, and a world-class educator. Coach Malcolm quietly built a powerhouse program at Apollo Junior High School in Richardson, Texas, and won over 150 games that he coordinated. He recently finished his fourth year as the head football coach at the Shelton School in Dallas, Texas, and in his four years at the helm, he's made four playoff appearances. After spending 16 years in collegiate and professional football, I can honestly say he's one of the best coaches in America, and I am blessed to have been one of his players. If you find this podcast valuable, go to www.ericcorum.com and sign up for my high-performance newsletter. In this newsletter, I provide you with valuable resources and information to help you pursue audacious goals, thrive in uncertainty, and live a healthy and fulfilled life. But now, it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Good morning, Coach. Glad to have you on today. Well, good morning, man. It's always a pleasure to get to talk to you. For those that don't know, this is uh, Mark Malcolm. He is um, he was my junior high football coach, and he's probably the best coach that nobody's ever heard of. And what I mean by that is, like on a national scale, I've had the opportunity to work for and coach with some of the best in the business. People that right now are vying for opportunities to play the college football playoff. And to me, Coach Malcolm is right up there, top three of all time. And we're going to talk about some of that today. But I got a question for you, Coach. Like, how did you get into coaching? Well, see, that is an interesting thing because I probably, you know, I got the job at Apollo Junior High. And, you know, my father had been a high school coach and, uh, you know, way back, I mean, practically not within my memory, he had given that up, started working to be an administrator. But, you know, sports was always part of our our life and, uh, you know, wanted to coach basketball and football at Apollo. But, you know, very honestly, I mean, I thought, you know, I'll do this a couple of years and I'll, like, pursue my law degree and, uh, you know, probably get into politics in some place. And, man, I just loved it as soon as I started doing it. And uh, What year you know, was that? Uh, we started in the fall of 1979. 
1979. So I immediate, immediately met my wife, you know, like at the first faculty meeting there. And so very honestly, uh, most of my first year was taken up with courting this pretty <laughs> French teacher. So, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, it's been an incredible life mm-hmm. and it's been that partially because, well, not partially, but almost completely because I have a, a spouse who who likes it and is willing to to deal with the time mm. involved. One thing I don't know if many people know is you know you think about businesses that require a lot of time. You think of surgeons. You think of somebody that's a corporate CEO. But whether you're a high school coach, a college coach, or a junior high coach, the time commitment is huge. Yeah. Because of weekends, games, preparation. And you, you know, you've been an innovator in your field. You started running a no huddle offense with 13 to 15 year olds way before many college football teams adopted this type of style of offense. What gave you the confidence to innovate in that direction? That's funny. Kim and I were talking about this yesterday because I think we're right at the point in our program now that we're about to have to do something different. We looked at where we were in our program and we were successful, but we felt like we weren't going to get better without finding something that we could technically be better at than the people that we were playing against. I mean, with a, you, you're very aware of the talent level of the people that we were playing, you know, Duncanville and Mesquite and people that had, you know, way more kids than we did. So we searched and that I thought that our kids would do well and that we felt, and you know, if I was confident about anything, it was about our ability to teach it. Uh-huh. I had a, I had a great staff at Apollo. Probably in respect, I should have done a better job of selling it to my F first because I was so, <laughs> I was so entranced with it. And I started doing research and, uh, you know, saw, watched a lot of videotapes and people did. And there wasn't real, honestly, there wasn't a whole lot out there, but. Now, what was this? This would have been, wow, you know, mid, mid to late nineties, probably 96 or 97. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, uh, been really successful, uh, but we were multiple uh, I kind of power team, but, you know, going faster. And, you know, this is an interesting thing because because you have the innovative mind that you do, you're going to see this instantly. There's an intimidation factor when you get on the field with people that are better organized than you are. When you look up and the other team is able to do stuff like that, I mean, it adds a level of self-doubt that the other team has to overcome hmm. and man, able to do that, man, you know, in junior high, we had, you know, two coaches and, you know, we had no huddle wristband driven offense with, you know, substitution packages and stuff. And that's a lot of coordination and communication for a two man staff, but I'm sure it was intimidating. Yeah. Oh Yeah. Well, and you got, you know, those guys have got pizza and girls, you know, <laughs> circulating their head and uh, maybe a little bit of a sliver left for football. It's funny to me. I So I graduated high school in 99, so 98, uh, 97, 96. So 95, 96, I was with you. I think the transition was taking place 
Because right. I remember right. going into the back of your classroom because I was just interested in football. And in the back of your history class, you kind of had this like football section. It was like a, a library. It was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was like a library slash class slash because you're a history teacher. And I was like, where are you getting this stuff from? And you showed me videos of how mummy and Mike yeah. Leach and Tim Couch at University of Kentucky. Right. And I, I just remember Tim Couch throwing balls into a trash can in the corner of the end zone. Yeah. And uh, look, like the high school at the time was running a totally different thing. Right. Yeah. And so how was that received? Because, you know, junior highs feed into high schools. Well, man, that is a really complex issue. And uh, the easy, you know, the the easy organizational thing is that people think that like uh, Valdosta, Georgia with Nick Hyder or Lake Highlands in our district with, you know, or, or they're running the same offense from peewee football all the way up is the model for success. But I think if you look around the state at the number of really good teams that don't have any feeder system because they're, they're district you know, free enrollment, you can go anywhere you want to, like Dallas Carter, they didn't have feeder schools, but man, I've been on the field with them. And <laughs> they were, especially in the Allen Wilson era, I was a great football coach, man. You couldn't beat them. So to some extent, I want to say, Every, every high school is reteaching what they do every year anyway because there's a certain amount that's just just not lodging in the heads of, yeah. of high school athletes. Uh, we had a complex relationship at times with our, with our high school. You know, honestly, we changed offenses a lot of – I mean, we had, you know, we had been an I-team, a Veer team, sometimes both of those things in the middle of a season – and, you know, at a certain point, we just felt like we needed to do what was the best thing for our athletes and that, you know, we had to have confidence that the high school guys would be able to teach whatever they wanted to teach when they got there. Our job, and I say to our middle school guys is, you know, teach them to love the game so that they'll keep playing it and, and make them fundamentally better. Teach them to get in a stance, teach them to, you know, to block and tackle, and I'll teach them what we want them to do when they get to us. Did you consider it risky? To do something different? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, certainly, I mean, there was blowback at times from that. You said it was blowback? Yeah. I mean, we, we this was uh, not always well received. Uh-huh. But this is, you know, probably more than you need to, to know. But since the junior high hired me, uh, rather than the high school coach, man, it really – my my biggest job was to please the junior high principal, and they were generally pretty pleased with the program that we had because we had, you know, we had great kids, and uh, you know, our kids were people like, you know, they weren't all in the same same level, but they were they were Eric Corums that weren't just football players. They were involved in something else. They sang in the choir. They were in the orchestra or the band. You know, it wasn't unusual for us to have first chair musicians on our team. And we had good discipline. Man, we didn't just care about our kids in the classroom. I mean, you know, you probably had to carry a grade sheet from classroom to classroom as a player. And, uh, you know, that's something that as soon as I took over at Shelton, we started doing it again. I want to know on a 
weekly basis what your relationship with your teacher is. Yeah. So that we were able to weather that, and I'm sure it didn't make me popular at the high school all the time, but but we did send them great athletes, and they were well-trained as football. Yeah, I think that's the thing that's missing to me here is like, as somebody that went through the system, I feel like I regressed as a football player in some ways, in some ways, because like the great Bill Belichick or anybody else, there, there's fundamentals and then there's the ability to think. Like once you've cleared the fundamentals and you, and that's a, that's a lifelong journey of like improving your craft, but you have to be able to think on the field and I think what happens is, is people get afraid when they're required to think. When it's something that they can't control and they can't understand. And people thought Elon Musk was nuts when he's like, yeah, I, I want to privatize the space industry. And, oh, you're crazy. Well, they just sent somebody to the moon and landed the <laughs> rockets back on Earth. You know, you yeah, don't... Standing up. <laughs> yeah. And if you look at Belichick, he's innovated... Every year, every game. And part of that goes back to his philosophy. He really ascribes to a lot of the stuff with Sun Tzu, Art of War, you know, attacking from a point of strength, making people defend from a point of weakness. What do you, what are your thoughts on that? Like when you, when you're scheming for somebody, like what are some of the like mental models or the ways that you're thinking about things? Well, that's interesting. I mean, one of the things that attracts me to what we do and, and there are other there's a million ways to do this. Again, I loved working for Jim Ledford, who was a, the best triple option coach probably in the country. Uh, I like things that are systematic because they give you, you know, okay, I'm going to look at this and see what we can do. I do agree as a generality. I think you should be constantly trying to make somebody do what they do second best. I mean, that's Bill Belichick. Whatever you do best, they're taking that away regardless of what it costs them somewhere else because he believes the percentage is going to be that you can't do your second as well as he can do his first best yeah. or his best. And, uh, man, I think we try and do that offensively and defensively. I mean, they, I don't look over my D.C.'s shoulder. I mean, I've he's – Ed Berry's a great coach and – I've told him before, man, if I felt like I had to look over the defi- the, the DC shoulder, I'd hire somebody else. I mean, my, <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, that's, I want to put a good person there and trust them. But offensively, yeah, I mean, we are, there are things we're trying to attack all the time. And it has become in recent, you know, high school teams are going to play their best athletes at defensive end or going to play games with how they cover your slot guys today this when I mean, you watch the games they're they're trying to make you think they're covering that guy but they're really that guy's really a box player or something so we try and take advantage of them there but the biggest thing for us is and this goes back to me watching scouting Plano when Tommy Kimbrough was the coach being able to do what we do better than other people can stop it Plano Plano ran load option you know 40 times a game <laughs> And and well, we don't care that you know we're going to do that. We're just going to better than you. And and by goodness, they did over <laughs> over there. You played them. It and, was uh, brutal. Oh my God! They never they never, they weren't tricking anybody. But Lord, they were good. And something else I'll say about having watched their program, they're one another group that had a plan for everything. 
I mean, they knew that systematically they were going to, you know, use the John Boston, you know, number defense. And they still, I think, still use that terminology. But even things like they're the first team I ever saw that when somebody on the other team got hurt, everybody took their helmet off and took a knee. Like they were, they were like robotic. They were <laughs> all the same guy. And I thought, man, when you have a plan for stuff that minute, no wonder they're just kicking everybody's rear end. Uh, you know, so I, I, I love that element of that, the system of it. Huh. I mean, you, you've got to watch a lot of the great coaches in the state of Texas over the years. Oh my, yes. And uh, what's it like? like during the week, knowing that you're going to match wits with somebody else. Like, it's like, it's me versus you in a game of chess. Like, do you really enjoy that? Oh, yes. I mean, and uh, first of all, you know, when I was at Pierce and a lot of this time, Brandon Hickman, who's now the Jesuit head coach and is one of the best offensive coaches. In, and then Stephen Anthony, who's now at Richardson High as the OC, was the play caller after that. And he and I were co-OCs. But, man, getting ready to play Highland Park, and going going over there, and you know you're going to play Randy Allen, and they always have a spectacular defensive coach. And yeah, I mean we're you know driven by that. You want to I want to I want to steal a that guy where he's not prepared, uh-huh. and it doesn't happen very often because they're really good. But we man, we were fortunate. One of the best games I ever saw. We got them to sit in like a quarters coverage and we had the ball at the 10 yard line and we just ran a curl and as we're snapping the ball I, t- I said to Brandon they're just going to stay in that but so our guy just catches the ball uncovered and I thought he's going to be mad down on the sidelines because he realizes that we just bluffed him into being in the wrong thing and you don't get that very often but that's pretty satisfying so I've heard it said I don't know where this was a few weeks ago they were talking about one of the college coach head coaches right now and they said what makes this coach so good is there's some coaches that adjust at the half and there's some coaches that adjust like a couple drives in but this coach as soon as you line up your personnel he's like oh i know what you're in they're in that he's he's (laughs) adjusting like right then where do you fall on that continuum i'm sure it's it's been a progression but how long does it take you usually like you're like oh or, you know what I'm saying? Like, you get kind of to that point now where you've seen so much football that you're like, okay, and can you translate that? How do you translate that to your athletes? Because that's really where the rubber right. meets the road. Right, right. You know, you know it is just a little bitty part of the game, being able to have something that your guys understand that they can then use to take advantage of that big deal. And again, we're looking for ways to do the things we do. And I'm, I'm constantly hearing from Marco Rivera, the O-line coach, who's, you know, again, man, I've seen George DeLeon coach. I've seen Hudson Howe coach, man. I think Marco Rivera is the best offensive line coach. And he was a pro bowler for the Green Bay Packers, right? for the Packers and, and ended his career here. Oh. And you know, the, the really cool thing about that guy and about, I would say about my OC, uh, Philip Carroll, those guys are, they're great teachers. You know, I don't know that Marco's ever been in a classroom, but he would be a spectacular classroom teacher. Sure. His playing career informs some of what he does, mm-hmm. but he's not a great coach because he was a great player. He's a great coach because he's a spectacular teacher. But, but yeah, we're looking, okay, how are we going to be able to run 
we, you know, we want to be able to run zone counter power against everybody we play. And, you know, as we're, as we're playing with them, it's kind of like the middle game of chess. You know, everybody has kind of an opening thing, particularly with the, the, you know, the Bill Walsh scripting plays and that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, everybody knows how they're going to open, but as you get into it where there's, you know, flexibility and movement in the middle game, that's where you, I think you start looking to pick somebody apart. And, uh, you know, it depends on what game it is and how many plays you have. I, I you know, felt like in the playoff game, man, my kids, what a gutsy effort. We, the COVID thing, had neither of our starting, neither of our first two quarterbacks were able to play in the game. Not because, not because they had COVID, but because they were quarantined from a contact somewhere else, not in the football program, but we had a wide receiver play quarterback for us, but it went along. Uh, we moved the ball some in the first half, but as we went along and started to pick these guys apart, and they were incredibly well coached, but we were able to run our stuff down to the guy. The game winds up being a great game, you know, with us missing, you know, three starting receivers and our quarterbacks. I mean, wow. so I felt like our kids recovered, and that is a huge, huge thing for our kids and for our coaching staff. I felt like all those people believed and did what they had to do to, to maintain our program in the, in the face of some pretty difficult obstacles. Huh. So you, you mentioned something that I wanted to touch on teaching. So you're not only a great football coach, but I think you would, you would say that teaching is something that you have a true passion for. And you, you know, you're a history teacher. Talk about how teaching in the classroom has impacted your coaching on the field. And then also how has your love for history impacted you as a coach? Wow. Those are great questions. And thank you for thinking that, that I'm good at these <laughs> things. Uh, out as an English teacher, but I have, you know, certification in English and, and history. I think it absolutely has overlap because coaching football is just teaching. And then, I mean, I think the way you relate to kids in the classroom, I mean, is, is going to have that kind of carryover. I think this is so much less true now than it was when I started, but coaches, you know, teaching history had kind of a unfairly bad reputation, I think for not trying very hard or not, you know, they had their feet up on their desk, reading their paper. The guys that I had didn't do that. I mean, the, some of my favorite teachers were coaches because they were passionate about what they did. But, you know, people had that reputation. But if you're that kind of teacher, you're probably not a very good coach either. I would say the willingness to prepare, your, how relational you are with your kids, and, and the essence of teaching, being able to take an abstract concept and make it concrete for somebody so they say, oh, okay, I understand the words you're saying. Now I have the mental picture and I can do that. And as you said, adapt it to the work doing in class or to the position I'm put in, in on the field. I say, okay, I understand the concept, not just the, you know, this thing for this particular day. I mean, I can use it tomorrow. Yeah. Know? And I think this is something I've, I've always been amazed about you, but I, and I think this is, I want to believe that we have this in common. I don't think I'm, I don't think I have your intellect or 
reading ability, but I'm, I'm well read because I, I want to know what makes things tick. And, uh, I can think back. I was five years old during the centennial of the civil war and, uh, time life put out like a paper, like history of the civil war. You know, the thing was probably 30 pages long, but I can remember the day I looked at that as I was maybe five years old. I still have it by the way, but I've been fascinated by history ever since then. And I try to know something about the history of everything I'm involved in. I I love the history of football. Mm. I mean, I've, you know, being able to see film of, you know, Sid Luckman, Sammy Baugh. And I have this, uh, I have Dutch Myers book about spread football on the shelf up above me here, partially because Manny Metsakis, who's another guy who is always looking for the edge that you get from, you know, what, uh, you know, Spangler calls non-obvious stuff. Yeah. That guy, I had, he mentioned it one time and I said, by God, I'm going to go get that. If that's what Manny's reading, I'm going to go get that book because it's, it's going to be good. Was it you that told me the quote? I actually put it up as a post, like the, uh, something about the non-obvious. What was that quote? Yeah. It's uh, Oswald Spangler quote, the, the secret of all victory lies in the organization of the non-obvious. What and does that, that mean man, Well, I would say the little bitty detail stuff that a lot of people just don't think of at all, or they think about it when there's a crisis, they go, oh, wow, we needed to have a, (laughs) we needed to have a plan for that. And that may work, but that's kind of like, you know, have a flat and you think, God, man, it would have been a great idea if I had a jack and a spare in my car, the really, really good ones. And I don't myself at that level but the guys that are great at whatever they do have a as much as possible a approach where get taken care of i mean you we check them all some of these i learned from sad experience but our thursday walkthrough has you know we take a safety we kick off after safety we practice covering a long field goal that we we're not sure we're going to make i mean all those things are factored in there because Man, when they happen to you in a game, it's too late <laughs> to say, wow, we should have put some time into that. I'll tell you something. One of the coolest things I, I think I told you this, one of the coolest experiences I ever had was at the Texans. And it was, uh, we were practicing against Sean Payton and the, the Saints. And um, Payton had just practiced with Belichick. And Belichick ran this whole period of practice where it was like the offense and the defense lineup. The teams were on the separate side of the field. The coordinators had their headsets on. And he would be like, all right, the situation is this. Uh, You're on the plus 30. There's X amount of time on the clock. It's third and three. And then he would just step back and he would say, go. Coordinators call the play and the players have to run it. And he got this from Belichick. And we did this for I don't know how long. And you got to see like, like that's football to me. Yeah, and really happens, right? I mean, <laughs> I've heard of situational football and Jimbo Fisher did a really good job of us. I remember mm-hmm. one day he's just stopped practice and he literally walked to the team down the field and just talked through scenarios. Wow. And it, and it was just like, this could happen here. This is why we do this. I walk, for, you know, and, and two minute on Thursday became just like war. 
And uh, I'll never forget this. When we're, you're going to love this story. I don't know if I told you this, but we were at Florida State. We had the number one defense in the country. And our offense wasn't too bad because every single player on offense got drafted. And our wow. offense literally could not move the ball on two minutes. Because we had we had four first, I think it was four potential first round draft picks playing in, so they would just rotate. And uh, I remember Stoops would like pull out a lot of the better players so we could actually get the playoff. And Xavier Rhodes at corner. <laughs> I mean, it was just like Pro Bowler after Pro Bowler. Wow! But we had the confidence on offense, even if things didn't work out, like that we could run two minute. And we were to win our first ACC championship. It was a Thursday night in Blacksburg, and it was like. We were in the top five or top 10 and we were down by, I don't know, five points or something. And it was less than two minutes on the clock. And we had to, and playing in Blacksburg is not an easy place. And this was with, uh, what's his name? Frank Beamer. Beamer. Frank Beamer is the head coach, right? You're like, okay, it's cold. It's Blacksburg. And I'll never forget (laughs) EJ Manuel. I'm standing behind him on the sideline. He gets the offense together. He's like, all right, guys, this is Thursday practice. Let's go. And it was like, and it just wow. boom, 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 boom. They went down the field like surgically. But it was because they had the mental model for it. They had trained for it. Mm-hmm. It's mind-boggling to me how many coaches don't even do this. Why do you think that is? You know, some of it's background, and some of it is their planning ability. I mean, practice, just, practice time just gets away from, I'm guessing. I mean, I think – how I see offensive football and how I see overall planning is uh, partially the result of having been a basketball coach for a long time because every year for 20-something years, or, or I on Wednesdays I taught situations in basketball. You're behind, you don't have any timeouts, so we're, gonna, you know, we're immediately fouling. We're transitioning from our four corners into a set to run a play to win a game. Well, I mean, I'll give you an example, and I didn't make this play up. I think we got it from from Burtner, probably from Coach Nicholas, but they had a late play, last four seconds, you know, four or five, called home run. And we practiced every week. I use that play one time in a game. We practiced it every week for years, but the year, the day that we used it was in the city quarter, quarterfinals where we had overcome a we were behind by 10 points games tied. We're in that situation. And I'll say to my guys is home run. You throw the ball in, boom, we throw it down. we get a tip out and uh, uh, Ron Bennett hits a jump shot for us to win this game. So it, it works perfectly, but I'm telling you what, if these are, these are 14 year old guys and you're getting out your whiteboard and saying, okay, let's, let's try this. Your chances of executing that are slim and none. I mean, the pressure's too great. They don't absorb information like that. But for these guys, it was something that they did all the time. Now, I mean, we're they're fortunate in it, you know, it's being able to execute it. But that's the kind of thing I, when you were talking just now about Fisher and uh, Belichick, I'm thinking about the movie, you know, We Were Soldiers, uh, Hal Morris training those guys from the Air Cav. And there's a scene in the movie where he says, okay, you're dead. Next guy in line, what are you going to do? Oh, you're dead. <laughs> but he made you learn the job of the guy ahead of you and the guy behind you so that in the reality of war, you know, you had a chance to get out your manual and start doing it just like you don't under the pressure in a game. You don't get to stop and reset everything. 
guys like that are successful because their kids believe in it. Man, our first first year of this staff, we're playing McKinney Christian in homecoming game and because of oddities of the schedule. It's like the next to the last game of the regular season, but we're we're down and we get the ball at our eight with like two minutes left. And man, we drive, drive right down the field and throw a touchdown pass to win the game. I, I got a, uh, uh, one of our teachers had a phone on the sideline. So I have a clip of that play from ground level and you know, everybody's jumping around and you can see the ball that he throws and we're just systematic about it. I mean, he knew when I called the play who he should be looking for and man, he just zips the ball in. We win. It's probably, I don't know that we'd ever beaten McKinney Christian before. They were really, really good during that time period. Uh, In fact, they went to the state semifinals, I think that year, you know, we got beaten the second round. So was there just a level of confidence? Like, when you're teaching somebody like you want people to be fluid thinkers and how do you inject confidence into somebody that that it's okay to take risk and no matter what happens at the outcome, I got your back. Like, how do you build that in? Because people aren't going to take risks or aren't going to execute in the moment unless there's this level of confidence, not only themselves, but also what's going to happen when they return to the sideline. No, that man, that is a great question. Again, I think some of that with me comes from being a basketball coach. I mean, if you yell at your shooter every time this is, they're just going to stop shooting. And that, I mean, that's not what you want. I mean, if a quarterback makes a mistake, you know, we, uh, what is it, Jim Collins says, you know, they have uh, autopsies without blame. They, uh, you know, they come to the sidelines and, uh, you know, I mean, either I've already talked to Coach Carroll and then he talks to him because I want him to coach the guy he coaches in practice. And sometimes I talk to I me, mean, I coach quarterbacks for a long time, but I want to what we saw that caused us to make the decision that we did. And then we'll just talk about that. I mean, every once in a while I'll have to say, just buddy, you're making decisions that are above, <laughs> above your pay grade there. Yeah. That's not one of the, uh, one of the options that we would like. I mean, that's like outside the the frame of where we want to go, but I like having a guy that's got that kind of confidence. The guy that threw that touch. So I was just talking about Benny Smith's a great example of that, man. He, he was a gunslinger, and 99% of the time, he would say, okay, I saw this and did this, and I guarantee you he was right. And we had, we had discussed all that stuff and practiced against it so that he had, whatever you want to say, you know, a bigger palette to paint from. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he was – and he wasn't afraid we were going to choose rear end when he came to the sidelines. I mean, you know, a guy that drops a ball, a guy that throws a pick, a guy that misses a block, that's going to happen. You know, we need to reteach it, not, you know, spend time chastising the guy. They know they made a mistake. They don't yeah. need you to point that out to them. <laughs> yeah. Who do you in the profession right now that people would know of college or NFL, do you consider to be like, maybe it's understated, but like you really think is like a fantastic coach. Cause there's talent makes everybody better makes play calling better, makes coaches better. There's no doubt about that. But who do you look to and you're like, wow, they're fantastic in a whole, like on a multiple levels. Well, I mean, you know, and of course, I mean, I'm just watching and seeing them on TV. You know, when I'm evaluating somebody, especially a head coach, I mean, I, I'm looking to see, first of all, how hard do their kids play? Because that's a that's an interpersonal thing. Kids are not going to play hard for people they don't like. 
and and you know you don't have to like your coach all the time. Uh, in fact, I think that's unlikely. <laughs> but uh, but having a relationship means you know when they they ask you to give a little something extra, you're going to do that. So again, I mean, how could I not admire Bill Belichick? He's so systematic about what he does. Obviously, Coach Saban got a chance to uh, see Kirby Smart speak one time and thought, wow, this guy's really put together. But one of my, my linebacker coach played for Alabama and Coach Smart was his, his position coach. And when I interviewed this guy he, in, over the phone, he was still in Chicago then, you know what he wanted to talk about? The relationship with his coaches. He didn't say, I knew, but this guy would never say, oh, I played in this championship game or I did this or that. But that relationship thing, besides being good at all the other stuff that you know, I think that's at the core of things. I always thought Martin Antonio at Michigan State was a great coach. I saw them beat Baylor in the Cotton Bowl, unfortunately, since I had uh, players on that Baylor. And I, I, I tend to be a Baylor fan. Really good. I would really like to meet Mike Tomlin huh. uh, because – he conveys the core values that the Steelers have toughness and loyalty and those things. I mean, if they were to like, you know, take, you know, modeling clay and make a Steeler coach, look at the last two guys that coached that team. He and Bill Cowher are just, just pressed out of the Steeler mode. I mean, they're, Tough guys, but they're loving guys. You can tell they love their players, and their players play hard for them. Man, now they got waxed the other day. I'm sure he's. I'm sure they're having a rough week. But that that I really really admire when I see, and you know somebody like you know in the basketball world, Mike Shashevsky. Well, times I've gotten to see people speak like that and get to you know he's just a handshake meet thing. But you meet. I watch somebody like that teach. They're teaching coaches, but teaching in a clinic, and you think, man, I would suit up for that guy in a heartbeat because he knows what he's teaching, and he just loves his kids. He respects them. I mean, I think the Nebraska program in the uh, at the height of their power, I mean, Coach Tom Osborne is about as good a football coach as I've ever seen in my life, and I had to meet him during that period, and uh, I just marveled at how he presented stuff. Man, he was – you know, teacher in front of coaches. And I thought, well, no wonder this guy can be a great option team and still throw the ball well, which is something people question, right? I saw, um, what's his name? The, the, the great, the guy that started BYU's success. But he said that, you know, it's hard to be good at everything. I mean, you need to know what you do best, that whole, uh, you know, hedgehog principle stuff. You better be able to identify the thing that you do better than everybody else. So those guys really stick out. Again, that my line coach, Marco Rivera, played with uh, Ama Green at Green Bay. So he introduced me to him. And first of all, both these guys look like they could still play. But Ama <laughs> Green sticks out his hand and he says, hi, I'm so-and-so. I said, I know exactly who you are. I mean, I, I watched you play for years. And when I meet those guys, I want to know, what was it? Tell me about Tom Osborne as a person, what was practice like with him? I think I've told you a couple of times at the Cotton Bowl, I've gotten to meet Cleveland Browns guys that played for Paul Brown. And that's the first thing I asked them. Uh, Tell me about Coach Brown. 
I mean, just from a historical thing, Landry Brown, that group, I have enormous respect for. I mean, it's they, amazing to me that here you are. How many years you've been coaching now? 42. 42 years, and you're still wanting to get better. Uh, I and there's so. <laughs> there so many people. That's not normal, though. There's so many people that just punch the clock in whatever profession they're in. And I think the thing about coaching, especially now in today's climate, like whether you're in junior high, high school, whatever, you can't last unless you're winning. Winning can't be the ultimate motivation. So it's this weird mind game of like, I have to be continually improving. I have to care about others. I have to love this. And then the winning, the winning takes care of itself. It's kind of like in business, you can't think about making money. You have to think about what am I going to do to please my customer? What am I going to do to create this amazing experience for somebody and then all these other things will start taking care of themselves. But as a quick commentary on college sports and the salaries of coaches. Wow. I have my own feelings about this. What do you think? Well, I did want to throw this out since you commented on the, the winning thing. One of my favorite stats is that John Wooden was in his 15th year at UCLA before he won his first championship. And then he won like 10 in the next 11 years, which is one of the most phenomenal things I've ever seen. What if they fire year three or year five? You know, they would have never experienced that. As far as money, you know, I mean, you've, you've been in the pro college, so I mean, you've dealt with this. I'm a little put off that college football is such a gigantic business. And uh, I wish there was more of a, uh, you know, kind of the high school feel to it. But I mean, you're, you're a Texas high school football player. I mean, you look around and there we have now realize these are the choice of the community. I mean, this, these all were done by democratic vote, but there's 60, $70 million football stadiums, high school football stadiums in Texas. Now, the places where I've been wouldn't do that. I mean, their their priorities are different than that, and I'm glad. But that's just there's just so much money out there, and it's one of the things that drives what you're just talking about. And I must say, you know, I'm paying you five million dollars, then I expect you to have eleven guys on the field, and you know, not get your kicks blocked, and not get game 20 times in a game because that makes us look stupid. And then, you know, we're making this enormous investment in you now. Are those guys, you know, is that market driven? I mean, obviously the schools have that kind of money or they wouldn't be able to pay those guys. So, yeah, it's there's a confusion that the money comes from the state, which is can't, it's illegal. Right. It comes right. from private donors, but the optics to me are terrible. Yeah, I agree. Like, I think that there should be a flat salary. If you're in the power five, you can make X amount as a head coach, X amount as an assistant. And, you know, you can work your way up to that. I think you'll see less craziness. More, you know, I don't think you're going to see a Tom Osborne ever again. Or a Frank Beamer. It's just not going to happen. Because you have to win so quick. And right, even these small schools, like, you know, Art Bryles had, it took him how many years to get to a bowl game? Four? 
at Baylor. Yeah, three, four. Uh, probably about that, yes. And then it wasn't like overnight. It was like this slow burn. Mm-hmm. Slowly build and build and build and build. But Baylor was so bad. It was like, what else? You know, they just kept saying, oh, we got another win this year. Let's just <laughs> stick with this guy. Yeah. And it creates just unhealthy, you know, work-life balance. And in the NFL, it's a business. It is an entertainment business. Yeah. And so I think players and coaches should get whatever they deserve because who, where else is the money going to go to the owner? I mean, that's fine. You know, so <laughs> that's great. It, the owner's the business person, right? But in college, it, I think it just steals the, uh, the joy. And that's why I think there's people like the Matt Campbell's of the world. He can coach because he loves it. And he doesn't have right. to leave Iowa state if he doesn't want to leave Iowa state. Right. He just likes it there. No, I agree with that. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I just, uh, I, I don't know. Just my time and all of it just kind of tainted me a little bit. I just started feeling like, you know, I just don't, I don't like this as much anymore. There's no loyalty at all because people are more concerned about their pocketbook than they are concerned about doing what's right. Right. But there's people like yourself and other coaches out there that are doing amazing things in other sports, volleyball, you name it, you know, that are impacting young women and men and uh, changing their lives. And, you know, personally, you know, you, you help foster that love for football in me. It was like, you know, you're, the, the Apollo junior high experience was like, you know, at a weird time in people's lives when you're like 13 through 15. Right. Was kind of like the pedestal. I was like, I kind of judged everything else by. And I'm not alone. There's a lot of other young men out there, guys my age now that are hitting 40 or 50 or whatever, which is nuts, that look back and we're like, man, those were those were great days. I want to ask you a question. Like, it took a while for you to get a head high school coaching job. Oh, yeah. I was nearly 60 years old. It eluded you. How many games did you win at Apollo? Uh, you know, um, I don't know, somewhere around 150 men. And how many games years? that I called the plays? That's, I mean, that's, I mean, I was, I was there finally for 26 years. And how many, how many games did you play a year? Oh, lots of times we just played seven or eight games. Yeah. And, and especially in the, the seventh and eighth grade. So you won 150 games playing seven to eight games a year when you were, a, when you were playing. I mean, that's pretty, that's what's your winning percentage. Then it was probably, you know, seventies, somewhere like that. At times, like our last four years as freshman coordinators, I mean, the two years at Burner and two years at Apollo, it was like in the eighties. That's crazy. You know, if you look at stats alone, you'd be like, why isn't this person moving up? Without going into like just other things, like what do you retrospectively? Because you, you and me are kind of like we we don't we'll just call a spade a spade, <laughs> and sometimes that can hurt you. When you look back, is there anything you would have done differently? Oh yeah, one of the things, and hopefully I would have not yelled and screamed at my players as much when they were when they were younger. <laughs> well, I will say my players for the last 40 something years when I talk to them now are are very kind to not bring that up. But, you know, you know, trying to 
you know, somebody that you're not doesn't work very well. I mean, and I mean, you have to know who that is because nobody has a better, you know, bull meter than young kids, whether it's your classroom or the field. If you're you're putting yourself to be something you're not, see through it immediately. So, man, I and I don't have a specific instance here, but I I would like to. I mean, if I could go back, I would be kinder to people. I mean, I, I don't think we were, you know, haven't haven't just tried to be mean to people, but but I, I'm much more at peace now with the idea that not everybody I'm around is trying to be in the same place that I am, and and being frustrated by that when I was younger. And I mean that would just come out as anger sometimes. Man, so why why can't you see this, or why why do you not want to put yourself into this at the same level? And I, I'm I hope much more willing to uh, take the joy in people as they are. And and I that's a that's a thing that I wish I had done better over the years. I mean I I think. Uh, you know, we built a program, and I don't think I'll ever do anything I'm more proud of than those years. I mean, they were golden years, but we, we, we just we stopped thinking about ourselves as a as a junior high program as a limiting factor, and just tried to think of ourselves as a football program. Whether you know it was things like. In, in those days, uh, VHS uh, tape shells that had our that were in our school colors and had our school name on stuff like that, and some of that I got, or a lot of it I got from other coaches, people like Bill Blankenship at Tulsa Union, who had that program run with the class of a college program. That's a great man, by the way, great coach, head coach at Tulsa for a while. I again, my I would, it's not X's and O's stuff i mean I, that comes with time and you know it you know this well football's not rocket science I made mean, it fairly intelligent adult i'll be able to figure it out at a certain level i mean the people we've talked have have gone way beyond that but it's the interpersonal stuff that i wish i had been i could that we can always get better at but i wish i had been better at from the start i've always loved my players i mean i I hope that comes across because oh coach uh, i you and i are very similar like it's kind of remarkable like as i listen in a deeper level how similar we are because i would get angry with like people being passive i'll never forget i was at one place in the sec and i was always studying and trying to learn and people like man just get your head out of the book and just like you know, and I, I would close my door and just grind and read and read and study and like try to get ahead and look for the edge. And and it served me well to find, to be able to see around corners. But like I, I'm with you. I wish I would have done a better job of managing some of those relationships instead of just being like. I think sometimes my attitude, even though maybe I didn't say it, was like, you're an idiot. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Or like. No, I understand. <laughs> like, and that's that's just part of mature, maturing and growing. You have right. passion, right. and you've got to learn how to temper that. And then sometimes it's not you; it's the environment, and other people just need to change or get out of the way. Like Project Warp Speed, 
unless some group of people decided that we're going to make this and forget it, I'm grinding, we're going to do whatever it takes to help the world get over a pandemic. There's no room for passive folks. You know, there's room for different personalities, but getting everybody aligned around a mission. And that's, I think the thing that you did the best at Apollo is like, Hail Apollo, we salute you all through the years. Like, yeah. you know, I still remember the fight song. Like, you couldn't yeah. wait to get the 200-pound club T-shirt. Yes, that was that, awesome. In that dingy, stinky, smelly locker room. <laughs> and, like, you know, there was just a sense of pride about going from 7th to 8th to ninth grade. Yeah. You know, and that you were going to, you know, you got coached by really great people at every single step along the way. And then honestly, I'll just say it, my high school experience was a letdown, especially considering how much talent we had. Now that I can look back and be like, that was a waste of talent. But you guys created a championship program. I think everybody that was ever touched by that program was like, that was a winning experience. And uh, absolutely. So I want to thank you for that because you really – kind of set the standard for me as a coach and now as a business owner of like what what a championship experience feels like looks like and um i know there's a lot of athletes out there that are are young men and women that you know you always treated people with kindness as a student like i never i mean you came over to my house to play me in ping pong yeah and to that was a blast. And to <laughs> absolutely ruthlessly kill me at ping pong, but you still came over to my house. And there's a lot of our athletes, like a lot of people that were bonded together by that seventh, eighth, and ninth grade experience. And uh, I just want to tell you how thankful I am. And, and that's why I say that you're the probably the best coach that nobody's ever heard of. And that's not a slight. <laughs> it's like, I would go through these, you know, I would think, oh, I'm, I'm around this guy and they're going to be like this. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like these guys over here got it. You know what I'm saying? You know, the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast is because I, I hope people, if they walk away from one thing from our this, this whole idea of high performance, it's like where you are is not a limiting factor. It's how you think. Amen. And um, absolutely. And you epitomize that to me of what high performance truly is. So, wow. um, Thanks for coming on, Coach. I really appreciate you being here. I'm looking forward to coming up to Richardson and having a hamburger with you soon. Would love to. God bless you, man. You too. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on another episode of the Blueprint Podcast. If you found this episode valuable, sign up for my high-performance newsletter at www.ericcorum.com. And if you want to stay current on everything high performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Quorum, Twitter at Eric Quorum, Facebook, and I'm also on LinkedIn.